As the occurrence of extreme environmental events increases due to climate change, how do households in Solomon Islands respond and how does this relate to household net worth? This panel at the 2018 Pacific Update answered this question and discussed negotiating a climate consensus and assessing climate finance readiness in the Asia-Pacific region. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. My name is Sanjesh, Sanjesh Naidu. I work with UNSCAP Pacific Office here in Suva. I was asked by the organisers to, to uh, facilitate this session. I'm quite pleased to do so. Um, the issue for climate change um, obviously is a big one, an important one in the region, so I need not spend too much time describing and outlining why and, and what are the issues that really are most pressing. I think we're quite across that. In fact, three presenters that we've got today um, will discuss a bit more on various aspects of this topic, so maybe we'll leave it to them to discuss uh, and, and bring us up to speed on, on their research. So the way this will work today, we've got three presenters. We'll be given roughly 20 minutes each to make their presentations. We then will have some time for questions and answers, so feel free to keep jotting down your questions and, you know, uh, we can ask our presenters to respond to them later. We'll try and keep this as informal as possible, as I said, so let's, let's, let's just, uh, you, know, uh, you know, keep it, keep it uh, that way as much as possible. Uh, also encourage our presenters to, to pause and engage if they wish. Uh, during their presentations, it's up to you. But um, in terms of order, we'll start with George, who is on my right there. George is a PhD student uh, at the ANU. And George will discuss today a topic, his topic today is from sinking to sinking, negotiating a climate consensus and regional coalition behavior of Pacific Island states. George will uh, mostly discuss a multilateral climate change negotiations process mm. and talk about the formal and informal channels of dialogue, co coalition building and consensus building. I'll leave it to George now. George, please proceed. Thank you. Yeah, Ladies and gentlemen, my name is uh, Salah George Kara. I'm a student at the Australian National University under the Department of Pacific Affairs. And um, it's very, I'm very glad to be here uh, to present and also to be part of my illustrious uh, panel. We first met uh, two years ago at the Samoa Conference, at uh, Payern Conference. So the Dream Team has continued <laughs> on to sort of like our final stages of submission. So uh, very glad to uh, share this uh, um, a panel with them. And so, um, and beyond that, I also would like to thank uh, the sponsors, the uh, University of South Pacific <coughs> and Australian National University Crawford School for um, funding uh, to be able to make it here. As um, the topic says, I look at multilateral diplomacy. And so my aim and the angle that I look at climate change are the negotiators, the people who voice the voice of the Pacific within climate change negotiating panels. Earlier this year, the Samoan Prime Minister said these words at the uh, Victoria University Clim Pacific Climate Change, where he talked about the instrumental work of Pacific leaders and Pacific negotiators and how they collectively uh, work together in delegations. Did they or did they not? 
Uh, and so this is my fascination uh, into uh, uh, the work, I mean, the work that I do. But basically, the foundation of my interest in this uh, area around diplomacy, diplomatic behavior of states and also the uh, negotiators, came in 2015 at one of the negotiations um, at the SITS conference, whereby these three leaders, um, amongst many things they made in their statements, mentioned uh, the following quotes that you see above on the board. The red, for me, struck, struck a chord. Pacific negotiators need to be in sync at the UNFCC. What was this? Sorry, maybe yeah, a little. Okay, so what? That was my puzzle. What is this? What is he talking about being in sync? And so what it was, I was situating myself in uh, investigating something around multilateral climate negotiations, more specifically the work of Pacific Island states and the work of their negotiators. Was there some form of regional solidarity? Or was it all based on national state interests? Was it Fijian interest or Samoan interest? And more specifically, what happens inside these negotiations? Unpacking the states, the politics, the power, the money, and the people involved in these negotiators. So basically what I'm look, trying to look at is the processes and the mechanics of building and reaching consensus by following 14 Pacific Island states, which are of course the 14 uh, independent states of the Pacific, which are a party to the UNFCC. I'm sorry. So this is the research question of the uh, PhD. In multilateral climate change uh, negotiations, how do states participate in building and reaching consensus? More specifically, the three angles that I'm looking at, or uh, the variables I'm trying to uh, uh, find out, who are these actors? I'm not just talking about the states, but the delegates inside the state, uh, the actors inside delegations. What are their negotiating activities, the monitoring, coordinating, and bargaining, and how do they employ these in building consensus? More specifically is this idea I'm fascinated about the consensus point. This is the actual, when, when researching um, negotiating studies, this is where the rubber hits the road the final parts, who makes it to the last or final point. Who are these people from the Pacific that are voicing these decisions? I mean, who are part of these negotiations? So that is uh, uh, the final part consensus point. <laughs> so I took the methodology, it started off in 2014, uh, but in, two in 2015, it looks at two sort of forms of uh, analyzing or collecting data. First, uh, collecting data, analyzing data. First one is process tracing which is more to do with, as a positivist um, uh, approach in, in terms of uh, researching, but it looks like causal in, uh, inference or causes of effect. Basically, it traces uh, historical narratives or historical data in terms of how things occur. Global political ethnography um, is a, a new sort of developing um, uh, a way of uh, a methodology which mixes policymaking and ethnography or anthropology, uh, the, and especially the practice of ethnography, tracing how international, uh, international policymaking are actually made and how they're implemented all the way down to the local level. More specifically, what I was trying to look is how is international policymaking, both regional and within um, uh, in the international space. Um, and in part of that is this, I try to explore with this idea of a Talanoa method, of interview, which is more emphatic uh, or cultural uh, uh, discussions and uh, interviews with uh, my fellow participants, which involves collecting source uh, data from document analysis, participant observation through various different conferences and uh, negotiations, 
and as well as what I call Talanoanga, which comes from 67, which work, working around 35 um, uh, key negotiators in climate change. That's what it looked like. That's what the, um, um, uh, the field where it looked like. It's being engaged in these rooms. So it's not the fancy sort of work out in the field of, you know, being part of community. It's not, uh, you know, walking around in between ministries to find out. It's actually working within the harsh, cold rooms of negotiations. What happens within uh, particular chambers of not only Pacific negotiations within the region, but also internationally. So it's following two sort of streams of negotiations in the year 2015. Sorry, I should have said, my data is situated in one year, from January 2015 to December 2015. And I was fortunate enough that 2015 seemed to be a big year in climate negotiations, the making of the Paris Agreement. So there on your left, you have the yellow box, which is sort of the various different meetings um, that happened, which was about creating and uh, negotiating the text of the Paris Agreement. On your right is the list of regional meetings that were uh, various different leaders, negotiators, <laughs> officials attended right throughout 2015. The ones that you have in, high, um, in bold and red are the ones which I attended to try and collect this data. Is there, a, is there an activity or are there people or are there trends that you see right throughout the year 2015 that builds not only what some may call the Pacific position, but basically the, uh, how it conforms to the behavior of states and their leaders in the negotiations, which leads into the final, COP21. And so that was sort of the, uh, the final part or the consensus point. So how these two processes, various different diplomatic meetings, the different actors that <coughs> situate themselves, the activities that happen, and how it comes to um, December 21 in, in Paris. So it, it's an integrative study because there's not one literature that um, looks at consensus decision making. So just to sweep through this, I look at psychology and ideas around meeting science or basically how we talk about how you create consensus within the people in this room. So that's where uh, the first, uh, first part of uh, the literature comes from. The second part comes from international relations that specifically looks at two sort of uh, strands of decision making theories individual cognitive, which is the thinking of your leader and how they would uh, make decisions, the work around small groups, there are, that there is a specific small group of individuals that influence foreign policy, or game theory. Now, I ignore game theory altogether because I'm not an economist. The second sort of literature that I base my, um, uh, from international relations, multilateral studies, all the studies around United Nations and around procedural uh, uh, and process norms especially how consensus is now sort of the main um, uh, decision uh, choice of uh, decision making within the United Nations system. And then the last two literature I try to extract some ideas to build a, a framework is around diplomatic studies and uh, the literature around integrative analysis and phases of negotiations. And of course, we cannot move away from Pacific studies. Um, and I'm specific, I really want to tap into, is there something idiosyncratic or the culture of Pacific negotiators and the culture of their negotiations? I try to extract that through um, unpacking some of the uh, literature around Pacific Way, Melanesian Way, um, and others. So this is sort of the framework, looking at these five sites, more specifically, UNFCC, ADP, PIDF, uh, smaller island states, PIF, UNFCC. By unpacking them into three forms of phases, 
by following them in all these meetings and looking at all these free uh, uh, negotiations and finding out who are these actors and whether these activities of monitoring, coordinating persuasive art debates and bargaining is evident in the behavior of Pacific Island states. And this is sort of um, another way of explaining that uh, uh, consensus, a multilateral consensus framework. But Pacific Islands have always been part of the UNFCC. Although I situate myself in the data into the year 2015, there was a story before that, from 1990-2014. And it's always been hidden within the archive or within the work around the alliance of small island states. And how uh, every, I think a lot of students are familiar with the role of leadership and formation of AOCs and agenda setting. But it does not bring out the story of who these specific people are. Uh, you dig deeper into G77, these three countries are very influential in the history of G77, Fiji, Samoa, Papua New Guinea. In LDC, you have Tuvalu, Solomon Islands, and Samoa, which no longer is part of, of, of that grouping. Uh, within the coalition of rainforest nations, the role of Papua New Guinea, uh, CVF is Kiribati, and Cartagena Dialogue is Marshall Islands. This also informs why these countries have specific issues in the current uh, negotiations today. Karahinga Dialogue focuses on uh, uh, climate um, uh, credit mechanisms, um, uh, mechanisms, hence why Marshall Islands are very big on mitigation. In terms of climate vulnerable farm, Otong is very big on, uh, was very big on um, climate refugees. Part of that is the influence of the climate vulnerable farm that situates themselves on human rights and climate migration. Coalition of Rainforest, Rain, uh, Papua New Guinea has always been influential in this. Um, uh, in, so these discussions, mainly around uh, the money that the, they receive uh, through the conservation of its rainforests. Uh, least developing countries, of course, Tuvalu and Solomon Islands are there, uh, uh, and they much more prefer instead of EOSIS, which comes out in the literature or something. They much prefer LDC. Why? Because of their um, special special consideration for LDC countries. And of course, Fiji is the former chair of, of G77. Samoa and PG uh, had uh, some subsidiary chair um, uh, uh, leadership in, in G77. But we must also not forget that there's a special sit seat within the Biru, which makes up the 11 vice presidents of the COP UNFCC. That has always been held by a, a Pacific Island uh, member, and it's always been one of the ambassadors on your right uh, of those uh, of the screen uh, at the United Nations. But uh, and. Uh, we also must not forget that there has been a lot of work around climate change and regionalism, around the communiques and the declarations from the forum, and of course the work of SPRIP um, and various different climate action plans. Sorry, I didn't finish that slide there. And 2015, everyone is aware of the burst or explosion of declarations that came out, ranging from us uh, starting from uh, LIFO and Oceania 21. Uh, to as far as the Pacific Island Forum Leaders Declaration uh, in September. So the first site um, I tried to explain in the thesis is ADP to, um, uh, uh, in June. More specifically, and a sort of keynotes from this slide is the role of coalitions, uh, the idea of coalition consensus. Why, um, what's influential here is how Pacific states behave in the various different coalitions. Uh, and more specifically within AOSIS. Uh, AOSIS is the main uh, coalitions in which uh, Pacific Island countries uh, were a part of. Now, at this point in uh, June 2015, there was no such thing as a Pacific coalition. 
um, there never was before. There was always a, a collective. That's what I call the, this group, which was an informal uh, 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 information sharing group. And part of that was sort of uh, sharing um, information of what were happening from various different coalitions. But never ever would, did they work as a, as a group. Why was that? The main thing, they did, uh, the main uh, impression uh, from uh, negotiators was the fact that they did not receive a political mandate to speak as a group. They were told to work as a group, but never to work as a group. So that part of what they call the political uh, architecture mess in the region, that did not give them that political mandate. They were frustrated by the fact that there was uh, differences between New York and uh, diplomats and the work of regional um, uh, techno uh, organizations and the role of NGOs who were hired or sometimes offered their work for free within the coalitions. Within the lit literature, existing literature, it doesn't say that every everything goes well, but inside there is, a, you know, there is a lot of tension and frustration that leads to inactiveness of, of, of the work of Pacific. But that was in June 2015. I came here to um, Fiji in September uh, to follow the work of Pacific Island Development Forum. As we all know, it was the third year that the, the um, PIDF uh, came about. I was interested in how policy, I mean, how negotiate, I mean, how their positions were made in terms of creating um, uh, the Suva Declaration. And so it's following these uh, within the, uh, not necessarily, I did not have access to um, uh, sort of the senior officials meeting or the, um, 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 the other forums uh, of the council, but I was able to follow through how it was, uh, and most of you were there, how the issue of COP21 were deliberated through um, uh, the panels on the, on the second day. And what, I, what the uh, sort of chapter looks at, uh, sort of argues is there's little to no negotiations that are involved within the chambers of PIDF. What it is, is a discussion. Um, uh, uh, it's, a, okay. it's a discussion um, consensus. There's no f fighting over the text. There's no brackets. It's more an open discussion uh, 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 forum. And it's a closed decision-making process. Skimming right through, everyone knows PIF and their work, but I look here in the, uh, this is the smaller island group, um, and how this sort of uh, declaration was actually formed in only two hours. There was no sort of process that happened, but it calls upon this idea of urgent consensus. This is the PIFI, uh, Pacific Island Forum leaders, and how they uh, created uh, the, um, sort of the, um, the PIF Port Morrisby Declaration. And... What I really want to emphasize here, without you have to read this, is the role of FOC. Everyone looks at sort of the role of what leaders do, but let me, uh, I think we need to know who writes the speeches for the leaders and who are there actually negotiating the text by text by text. And so the role of FOC is something which is very close that's not, uh, these are sort of the, one of the most uh, important chambers in terms of um, negotiating uh, 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 not only climate change, but any regional policy within the PIF leaders. Sorry, I'll scream right through. UNFCC, yeah. uh, in COP21, I highlight three important stories. Yeah. First one is the role of Pacific SIDS and Crop Plus team. What, one thing that came out of uh, Port Moresby was the fact that they actually gave a political mandate for a group to eventuate. Uh, and from 38,000 delegates, 15,000 were officials. From the Pacific, 375 were uh, negotiating on behalf of the Pacific. 
but within the chambers, less than 50. Huh? So there's only less than 50 people that carry out the work for 14 states of the Pacific. The work of Tuvalu United Nations on the consensus point or sort of the last two days, the reason why loss and damage is on the table is because of a bilateral that happened on the last two days of negotiations. Uh, instead of having an open forum discussion, the presidency of France asked United States and uh, Tuvalu to go into a room and negotiate the terms of what loss and damage should be. That is the story of a specific island country pushing one country to one corner to the end, and that was the bargaining chip uh, of loss and damage and how it uh, came on to um, the final negotiations. The work on Marshall Islands is another example of a Pacific Island countries working with other countries. Instead of pushing it to the extreme, it worked into sort of a, a, a creating this high ambition coalition around working around Marshall, um, United States and the European Union. So I guess I'll leave in these last two slides. Um, when we talk about consensus, everyone tends to think or look at it as when parties or countries agree. It is in fact not. It's when parties agree not to disagree. And so the game and how countries have become very successful in negotiations is the fact that it's not by appeasing, which tends to be the discussion or, or, or discussion consensus that happens around the region, which is about appeasing each other. In fact, within the chambers of negotiations in, uh, uh, within the UNFCC, it's about the cutthroat uh, uh, pushing countries all the way to the end or pushing your uh, positions. So it's not that uh, you go as a group uh, towards the consensus point towards the end. It's not about the group. It's about the one country. And so it's the uh, consensus is to influence the power of the minority where one country has the veto to, um, uh, uh, to be influential in the negotiations. But more specifically, I'd like to, while the literature always focuses on uh, coalition parties, the role of leaders or the role of a state delegations, I'd like to argue further on, expand that uh, sort of uh, framework into the role of technical negotiators uh, and the importance of why these people who are less than 50 speak on behalf of the millions of people that live in the islands. The reason why they need, I mean, these are the reasons why they need resources for their work. But I also, if, uh, if I wish I could uh, ask me about the politics, there is a very, uh, uh, well, it's a cordial, uh, 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 cordial relationship within the, uh, um, uh, amongst these technical issues, there's also um, challenges in which uh, they pose. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, uh, that uh, presentation. We'll, um, we'll let um, the other presenters uh, get, uh, get on with their with the PowerPoints, and then we'll get back to you, Salah, with some questions and uh, give you an opportunity to um, respond. So um, I'll pass on the mic now to Michael. Michael is a PhD um, student at the uh, University of the South Pacific. Michael will talk, talk to us today about the, the household net worth in uh, Solomon Islands and how it actually impacts on their responses to climate change and environment extreme uh, uh, events, disasters. So Michael will take the case of Solomon Islands and discuss this, that point. All yours, Michael. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for, for, for the opportunity to present uh, uh, this last paper of my uh, PhD paper. 
uh, been submitted last uh, week for World uh, Development Journal. Uh, and I'd like to acknowledge uh, my supervisors, Dr. Ricardo Gonzalez uh, from Chile, and also Dr. Morgan Weiril, uh, the Deputy Director of Pacific Center for Environment uh, Sustainable Development. Um, as you can see there, household network and its relation to response to climate change, or we look further just beyond climate change to environment extreme events. And uh, uh, the topic that I'd like to put home with that household economics or household response or network in terms of relation and in relation to responding to extreme event, uh, I'd like to ask the question, is there any chance for the poor uh, to cope with extreme environment event, two case studies in Solomon Islands. And uh, reconciling the theme <coughs> with redirect, re, 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 redirecting of the nation at 40. Remember, Solomon Islands is celebrating its 40 uh, independence uh, this week and next week and all of this, uh, uh, part of last month and this month. And uh, I thought that I would do justice uh, to put this paper across and also uh, frame it into the national theme so that maybe the paper can also uh, bring some uh, ideas or some concepts it, uh, to policymakers uh, at some later stage on how to conserve and to uh, equip household uh, uh, income or household network in order to respond to uh, extreme event or climate change. This is the, the map of the Solomon Islands, I won't bother you with that. And the, why is this study, uh, as I've said earlier, this is a part of a series of studies or publications that we made uh, over the past uh, uh, three to five, uh, four years. Uh, this is a part of a PhD program or a project which I analyze the anal uh, analysis of aversive strategies to impact of climate change in the Pacific, a case study of Solomon Islands. And uh, we looked at uh, different uh, uh, perspective of that main theme, of that main uh, you know, uh, questions that we want to answer with, with that PhD thesis. And uh, we looked at, uh, for example, transformation of rural communities is one of them. Uh, we looked at uh, limits and barriers to transformation also one of them. We look at assessing, assessing of uh, potential role of education as a tool for adaptation uh, as one of them. We look at assessing one talk system, a capital, uh, social capital uh, system in Solomon Islands, uh, also as part and parcel of the whole uh, spectrum of analyzing aversive strategies to uh, impact of climate change. And uh, that was built upon uh, my earlier research on building resilience to climate change by improving the socio-economic uh, uh, standards of the rural communities. But in th that, that was a, a, an early paper I, I published in my uh, master's thesis, and I thought that there's a limit to that. Uh, in order for someone to, be, to build resilience to, in, to the long term, he, he must graduate from this economic uh, stand up, uh, standpoint to you know a higher uh, level as well. So this this is sort of embrace that idea uh, as we will discover. So let me uh, draw to you some background of, of, of the Solomon Islands. Uh, Solomon Islands has 990, 992 islands. 82% of the population lives in the within 1.5 kilometers 
uh, along the coastlines. That's the population of salmon lions. It's very, very uh, high density uh, along the coastlines. And between 1980 to 2009, this is a history, uh, about 17 disasters, 17 disasters or extreme events occurred in the country, which cost more than $20 million, uh, US dollars, affecting over uh, 300,000 people or 60% uh, of the population. That's uh, the history. Uh, so uh, in that context, uh, about uh, 29 years period, about 17 extreme events occurred. And uh, with a, with a, a you know, a, a different uh, of uh, 1.5 month to 1.5 uh, uh, seven months, there is or there was an extreme event. So, in terms of cost, it cost about 1.2 million US dollars for our country for, for extreme event uh, to the context of Solomon Islands and really affecting the household uh, uh, economics uh, of, the, of the country. And uh, it is projected that the uh, extreme events will continue to increase. Uh, generally in the Pacific, six to eight uh, across, the, uh, ac across the Pacific, and also uh, in the context of Solomon Island, uh, it's exposed to, to that. So the frequency, intensity, and duration uh, will be also um, um, uh, affected. In terms of uh, Solomon Islands, as uh, others would say, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is the current uh, data. 12.7% uh, or 78,000 people live below poverty line. 78,000 uh, people live below poverty line in the Solomon Islands. And uh, most of them, they live within the uh, peri-urban areas. So that's quite a uh, high population. Uh, people living below uh, uh, <coughs> below uh, uh, poverty line. I won't bother you with it, but the, in terms of the focus of my study is, like I said earlier, is more on environment uh, extreme event and not really uh, till it down to climate change. In terms of the, uh, the social scientists, they say that you have to have a you know stronger uh, or higher capacity in order for you to 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 respond effectively to, to to the impact of climate change or extreme events. As uh, my study is uh, concerned, in an earlier study we we discovered that there's a uh, it, there's a positive correlation between poverty. And, uh, uh, and how we respond to uh, extreme event. And that, that, that was a paper published there. So with this paper, we uh, uh, base our study on Ostrom and uh, uh, Eleanor uh, 2014, and also Newark, uh, some work that they've, they've been done on uh, uh, community management of communal resources. Yeah, so we are looking at household uh, uh, network not as not on uh, income network but household uh, uh, network. So we are looking at uh, uh, for your information. Ostrom is the first lady uh, that won the uh, uh, Nobel Peace Prize for economics for community uh, in 19, uh, 2009. That's in the U.S. That's the first social uh, economist that won the, the Nobel Peace Prize for that. So a hypothesis is that income network is poor measurement of household well-being. But household network is critical 
and it is important to building impacts of uh, to to uh, response to extreme uh, uh, and, and environment events, and that's that's been drawn some conceptual ideas around the work of Ostrom and also uh, notebook. So uh, we applied, uh, we undertake two case studies, uh, one in Honiara and one in the Western province. Uh, one is uh, why I, I put an extreme event because we capture a community that was affected by tsunami. So tsunami is not a climate change uh, uh, disaster. <coughs> so then, uh, so I have to expand it so that I can capture uh, that in, in the spectrum as well. Uh, then the slide two is in Honera, it was a flash flood. Uh, we interviewed about 120 people, uh, 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 a boy with, with this. This is the, our work, okay. We, we undertook a uh, uh, thematic um, um, uh, analysis uh, on this, and we, we, this is the process that we took. Um, familiarizing with data, and any social scientist would uh, uh, let or would know this, uh, this kind of process. And this is the, the result that we sort of uh, uh, found in our, in our, uh, in our result, in our, in our research. So, you know, people thinking that disaster is everywhere, uh, government need to do more, uh, and et cetera. Uh, they need uh, community support, yeah? And this is the, 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 I just want to show you how the process we do it. The main themes, uh, we codify it, then this, the, you know, the emergent themes, then we uh, put them together. And this is the, as, as the, like the final result that comes from our final research, is that family and community uh, is important. Uh, we sort of claim that major government uh, disasters and everything uh, is also critical. Uh, yeah, so th those are, this is the final, final. And uh, uh, the, I think the application part of this is quite critical, and uh, I want to, I want to, uh, just to uh, highlight it. So the GDP, in, in terms of GDP, uh, in the Solomon Islands, 1.2 billion is in, in US dollars, I mean, a population of 600,000. And, uh, 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 you know, GDP per, per capita, of a person, uh, it's uh, one one thousand and uh, nine hundred uh, and uh, four dollars. That's about uh, in the U.S. dollars. So when you divide that further into the number of days, it's about five dollar twenty. But in terms of uh, what is happening here in on the ground, what you found on ground is that twelve point seven percent people they live below one dollar per person, yeah, $1 per person per day in the country. So that's a, that's a, that's a, a quite, uh, so <coughs> relating that, that, that percent, can we answer our question that is there any chance for an ordinary someone islander or poor, uh, the poor to cope with extreme event? I think no, I think the answer would be no, because it, it would be, uh, you know, uh, hard for them to cope with that. This is income and expense uh, versus expense. You look at it, the, the light green is income and the dark green is expense. Some people are expending more than they have. Yeah, so we don't, 
that's that that means money must be come from someone must be accounted from someone so this is their household income net worth value majority of them they they have a net worth value of 1.9 or 1.3 thousand dollars so just, just just an application is that net worth so in uh, in, in, our, in our sort of general discussion and, and uh, of the paper we say that net worth income is not a good mess of well-being for the communities gdp although it's modest in the country but that doesn't relate translate to the people down there in the in the in, in the communities yeah uh, people must perceive that they are poor and they don't care about conservation because they they have to meet uh, the needs of their family as well and transformation process is quite critical and the all, all, all these are, are part and parcel of the, 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 the research. So, like I say, is there any chance for the poor to cope with extreme event? The answer, I would say again, no. But seeing that the number of disasters, people continue to survive, that means there must be something else uh, on the ground. And I would say that, yes, people can survive. People can live on, and people can continue to live on. So. With the study, we sort of conclude that social capital, community uh, support is critical. In the context of Solomon Island, one talk system, Kerker in Fiji or Fasamoa uh, in, in Samoa. And natural capital, that's a new concept. Conservation of resources. We have to have uh, a natural capital inventory. We have to have an MPA in the environment. We also publish a paper on that. Uh, uh, on, on NPA and uh, benefit and cost of that. So uh, we, 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 we thought that government should thinking of particularly uh, 10 in 40, thinking of, you know, maybe uh, <coughs> not too high-minded, but look at some of what the researchers are saying. Human capacity is also critical. One of our papers is, is on that as well, uh, in terms of community. Transformation of rural communities are critical, and one of our papers is in, in that as well. So we thought that all in all, we add this together, we can say that household network can be able to resist any event of climate change. Thank you for listening. Thank you, uh, Michael. I was very... Um, it was very uh, informative, and um, a lot of points I'm sure most of us have got to discuss when we get uh, to the question time. For now, we'll um, move on to Charlie, who is also a PhD student here at the uh, University of the um, South Pacific. Charlie is talking about the assessing of climate finance readiness in the Pacific, mm. and he's dis he he'll discuss whether it really is an issue or is, are there issues even more than readiness that you need to actually get some of these funds? Yes. Leave, uh, it, to, leave it to you, Charlie. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you uh, Chair, for the opportunity. Um, my presentation is, uh, is clearly written there on the board. I'll be looking at the issue of um, readiness. Readiness in the domain of, um, or rather in the climate finance domain, is currently a buzzword right now. Yeah, it's a topic that is currently trending. Um, <clears throat> And uh, this is part of my PhD. Uh, the work that I'm presenting here has been published. 
Um, <clears throat> if uh, anyone is interested in reading the paper, more than willing um, to um, send you um, and read the details as to how we've done the analysis um, of uh, readiness in the Asia Pacific region. So I did it with my uh, supervisor, Dr. Jeremy, who is a well-known consultant um, here in, the, in Fiji as well as in the Pacific, and also one of the, the leading thinkers when it comes to the, this whole issue of uh, climate finance in, the, in Asia Pacific. Um, the purpose of the paper is not basically to um, criticize um, the readiness progress that are happening in the region. I know um, the Pacific has been um, one of the um, major recipient of uh, readiness financing, um, but rather um, to enjoy a discussion and a reflection of where we are going on our current uh, readiness approach. Uh, so that's basically in a nutshell um, what the paper is about. So to understand what is readiness, um, I bring in this picture of the climate finance architecture. If you can look at it, uh, those who claim to be expert in, the, uh, in this area uh, are still mesmerized by this picture. Um, we tend to call it the spaghetti diagram in terms of trying to identify where the money is coming from, where is it going, how is it being delivered. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say is that the, climate, the global climate finance architecture is very complex. Um, <clears throat> pre, uh, before the Paris Agreement, it was already complex. Now with the Paris Agreement in place and the fact that um, it, um, because of the Paris Agreement, um, we now have a pro proliferation of climate finance sources and this has complicated this already complex environment. So <clears throat> imagine this, uh, or rather you look at this picture from the perspective of a Pacific Island countries very small, we don't have the capacity, we lack the technical knowledge in terms of trying to navigate and um, understand our way through all these maze of, uh, of flows. So, so the, the issue of readiness is based, uh, or rather, in terms of trying to define readiness, there's no universal definition of it. The, the term is fast evolving, but the essence of readiness is basically uh, leveling the playing field so that all developing countries have the ability to participate in this environment. That's basically what readiness is. Um, <clears throat> WRI is a leading uh, organization that's doing work in this area, and this is how they've conceptualized um, readiness. Okay? So readiness, as we can see from this picture, is context-specific. It's related to uh, sp uh, countries, uh, and it's basically looking at how countries access finance, both from the public and the private um, sources, uh, and other uh, capabilities that countries need to have to effectively uh, plan, manage, and use um, climate finance. So basically, this is the understanding of what climate finance readiness is. Yeah? It's basically looking at capacities of countries, capacity to plan, capacity to um, access, deliver, as well as um, report on the results. So readiness activities, if you're wondering what are readiness activities, uh, basically readiness activities are those initiatives that fits into one of these uh, criteria. So we're talking about uh, policies, um, enhancement, mainstreaming of climate, um, climate change, international policies, improvement and coordination, capacity building, um, <clears throat> improving of uh, framework, setting of institution that needs to be in place. All these are part of part and parcel of what readiness is. Um, <clears throat> like I said, I was I was very blessed <laughs> to have a supervisor who have um, <clears throat> um, inside knowledge into the, uh, this domain of climate finance in the region. And in our usual discussion, what 
in our usual student to supervisor meeting, what we found was that um, there seems to be a race for um, accreditation in the region. Yeah? When we talk in the context of accreditation, this basically we're looking at the context of C, uh, the GCF, the Green Climate Fund. Uh, the Green Climate Fund, in terms of how it views readiness, it basically um, focus on uh, um, reading a country or a country's um, entity to directly access the fund. So it has a very narrow focus on what it understands as readiness. It has an institutional focus rather than a um, national-wide focus on what readiness uh, should be. And if you look at it, if you look at what is happening in the region, is that every country's uh, or rather, a majority of the Pacific Island countries are trying to get access to the GCF or trying to get ready to access the GCF. So that's basically what that accreditation race um, is all about in terms of how we're observing the readiness trend um, in, in Asia-Pacific, specifically uh, in, in, in the Pacific. And uh, <clears throat> so this seems to be when we talk readiness in the region, everybody start thinking about the Green Karma Fund because that's the in fund at the moment. And another trend that we are witnessing is that from the donors' perspective, they seems to be emphasizing the role of private finance yeah? because of the fact that um, private, uh, private sector can uh, catalyze um, or rather multiply um, public finances. Um, so there's a huge push by donors for countries in the Asia-Pacific to start to move towards trying to tap into this source of fund. Uh, and... Um, <coughs> In terms of, um, uh, again, when we talk readiness, it's becoming synonymous with this term of uh, enabling environment and uh, creating the right investment condition in which um, public finance can leverage uh, private finance. So, so those are basically some major observations uh, which um, um, help us in framing our thinking towards um, uh, conducting this research. So the purpose of the study was basically um, to try and address a knowledge gap when it comes to the readiness literature that especially focused on the Asia-Pacific, uh, especially uh, in, in, um, in, the, in the Pacific region. Uh, very sparse literature exists, even if you talk in the context of climate financing. Um, there are some readiness literature that exists, but there are gray literature. Um, gray literature, we, already, we all know, the weakness or the limitation of it, uh, they often lack academic rigor. Um, and um, <clears throat> so there was a need to try and um, fill this gap. That's what we thought uh, um, we could do in terms of uh, the purpose of the study. And also the fact that most of the li uh, readiness literature talks about um, how country could get ready. You know, what are the readiness challenges that countries are facing rather than uh, discussing how can country measure their readiness progress? That was the uh, niche area that uh, we thought we could uh, fill in terms of trying to provide some literature and um, um, conduct research in that particular area. And so we thought by doing this uh, research, we thought it could uh, provide food for thought for donors in terms of you know um, thinking or rethinking how they um, approach this whole concept of readiness in the Asia-Pacific. And also, it could lead to uh, targeted um, funding when it comes to uh, approaching this whole concept of climate finance readiness. So why as a Pacific? Well, uh, we are in, I mean, the South Pacific, the University of the South Pacific is in the region. So it's obvious to do 
work that would be valuable and contribute to what others, um, other actors um, who are working in the climate finance space. Um, but if you approach it from the vulnerability, uh, vulnerability perspective, um, the region is the most vulnerable region to um, climate change. I mean, all countries, all regions can claim vulnerability, but stats found have argued that we are the most vulnerable. And this, um, <coughs> these facts have been um, highlighted in the 2015 ESCAP report um, in terms of uh, risk propensity. Uh, Asia, countries in the Asia-Pacific region <coughs> are more than... <coughs> the risk is twice when it's comp uh, in terms of... Um, the chances of uh, disaster striking the region is twice as much when you compare it to Africa, uh, six times as much when you compare it to the Caribbeans and Latin America, and 13 times more when you compare it to Europe and North America. And also the fact that the region hosts the largest, uh, poorest population in the world. So just emphasizing our, our vulnerability in that, in that sense, which uh, again kind of justify why we need to conduct this research because vulnerability obviously leads to the need for more financing. So in terms of the summary of climate finance flow in the region, <clears throat> again, I've already shown you the uh, global <coughs> uh, climate finance architecture. Again, the lack of literature forces me to give you 2002 data, uh, sorry, 2012 data. That figure, I would believe, has increased. Yeah? Even 21 funds active in the region, if you look at it in the context of Kiribati, um, Palau, yeah, who have, who's, um, who face uh, severe limitation when it comes to capacity, when it comes to having the technical know-how, when it comes to size in itself, yeah, these, these problems are permanent in those countries. So the ability of those countries to even navigate 21, uh, you know, because these funds have different expectations, have different uh, requirements, different objectives, yeah? uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge ask. Yeah? So that's basically what the point that I'm trying to, um, to stress. Uh, the region is the largest recipient of climate finance, largely because of China and India being included in the region. But if you start to peel away uh, um, the layers and look into the nuance of how um, finance flows into the region, you would see, start to see there's a major variation. Yeah? Um, if you look at countries in the Asia sub-region, uh, they tend to employ... A different mixture of modalities in terms of how climate finance are delivered to countries. Um, when you look at countries in the Pacific, we basically use grants. Grants is the major instrument of how climate finance are being delivered to us. Um, <coughs> mitigation, a huge chunk of uh, climate finance that comes to the region goes to mitigation. And not only that, most or rather the mitigation finance only goes to the bigger and the populous um, Asian countries. And likewise, for the remaining adaptation, Bangladesh, Indonesia, and the Philippines take the huge chunk. And that's why we tend to receive the scrap when it comes to um, how much, in nominal terms, comes to the Pacific sub-region. <laughs> so, and on top of that, climate finance still are being delivered outside national system through short-term projects, through other... Uh, um, third parties who implement the project on, on the donor's behalf, yeah, which 
which then engender this whole notion of why the region is moving towards readiness, why they need to access funds directly from uh, different uh, external sources. And the readiness, like I already mentioned, is increasing in the Asia subregion, uh, in the uh, wider region of the Asia Pacific, specifically in, in the Pacific. And the SEI report that uh, came out last year, if you look at the 748 million that flew, uh, that flow into the region, 42% of that was basically towards enabling environment. In other words, readiness. Eh? So they were targeted. They were targeting uh, uh, activities such as mainstreaming, coordination, uh, policy strengthening, capacity building, all those issues that that relate to um, the enabling environment and in indirectly relating to to readiness. So the method, so how did we develop this, um, this framework to try and measure how countries are progressing when it comes to, to readiness? So we employed um, a three-structured approach. These approaches are linked to it. Um, they are like steps. After one phase, then we move on to the second one. So the result of phase one feeds into phase two and then feeds into phase three. Uh, the, the research technique that we use uh, mirrored the works of um, Dr. Eva and Dr. Hills, um, <coughs> who kind of did a, um, a similar study in the region, but they were looking at um, renewable energy readiness. Yeah, so, so the point that I'm stressing is that the technique that this paper or this work use has been um, verified and uh, <coughs> proven to be accepted by the wider ac academic community because the paper that um, they, um, or rather their research has been um, published in an A-star ranked journal, so there's validity that the, this method um, is acceptable. So um, in different uh, research phase, we also use different research techniques in terms of how we collect and analyze the data. So the, in terms of phase one, in terms of determining a common scale, which will then um, um, which provide the foundation for this whole, um, whole framework, we use the CPAR, yeah? the Climate Public Expenditure Institutional Review. I'm not going to dwell more on what this um, document does, but we felt that this document, um, when compared to other national documents, it's most closely aligned to this issue of, of readiness. Those are the three pillars of the CPAR. Um, and in the time of the writing of the paper, only 12 countries have completed it, six from Asia and six in the, um, six in, um, the Pacific. Uh, even though the CPR, of, uh, uh, the CPR of countries are context specific, but the principle and the structures that they employ are very, very similar. Um, another reason why we chose this document as the basis of um, our study was that, excuse me, it, it's basically done or rather the organization that takes the lead in preparing this kind of uh, climate finance assessment are uh, repeatable in nature. Um, works, uh, CPUR works in uh, Asia was mainly done by UNDP and those that um, were done here in the Pacific were, were, or rather PIFs took the lead role in conducting climate finance assessment of, of countries. And on top of that, um, these documents are widely available. Okay? So there's a... <clears throat> That's the whole reason why we chose the CPR as the, the basis of document where we're going to derive the common um, scale for the framework. So what we did basically was that we, we thoroughly um, analyzed line by line 
the CPR of its countries. And the issue that we looked at was the problems. Okay? This was the common scale, the explicitly mentioned problems of readiness in the CPR or climate finance in CPR. That was the common scale that we used. So line by line, 12 country documents, you can imagine the pain that I was forced to go through. <laughs> and after that, yeah, from there we managed to derive 200 plus explicitly mentioned uh, problems. Um, again, just by looking at it, you know there are limitations to that method, but I've already justified the reason why we chose this, um, this pathway of research. And after we have derived <coughs> all the problems, we then use the thematic analysis as what Mike have done in, times, in, in, in trying to reduce the number of problems that we have. So we're basically tagging and coding and grouping similar problems together. 48 problems, that was the end uh, result. 40, we came up with 48 thematic areas. And after that, we did a coding, yeah? binary coding, similarly binary coding of one and zero. <coughs> and then we went back to the CPAR to see if countries explicitly mention this problem. If they have it, one, if they don't, zero. The whole reason why we were doing that because it then links on to phase two. Phase two, basically, this is where we conducted a PCA, a principal component analysis through SPSS. Uh, the PCA further reduced the problem into major components. Uh, so the major components that came up of the PCA was uh, three major components. These were the components, institutional and policies, knowledge, and the physical policy. After that, we then developed the indicators. The indicators were developed through a review of the literature. And then we, again, used the same binary coding technique that we use in phase one. And this was the result in terms of trying to determine how countries have progressed. If you look at it, Samoa and Tonga, the, the, the Pacific in general tend to perform better when it comes to the policy and the institution dimension. Um, if you look at the SEI report, you would see why this makes sense because most of the finance of the finance that comes into the region are di directed towards um, policy and institution uh, building and strengthening. But we tend to lag behind the Asian Pacific Asian countries when it comes to knowledge management and the physical environment policy. This could be related to our size. Yeah? We lack resources, we lack capacity, and so we lack the um, the scale in which. Um, um, we could utilize other forms of modalities when it comes to accessing uh, climate finance. So that's basically, in a nutshell, uh, how countries have progressed so far. And then after that, we then linked, yeah, tried to assess whether this readiness progress of countries have an impact on the amount of climate finance that they've accessed so far. So the independent variable here is um, climate finance, is CF. And the uh, variable of emphasis is readiness, that's RE. Um, that's basically the scores of countries as per the framework. And then we fit into the model, this simple uh, multivariate model, the control variables. How did we came up with these uh, control variables? Again, the literature was consulted in terms of um, those literature that have looked at finance allocation, uh, determinants of um, um, climate finance flows into countries. And we found that these were the common um, variables that exist in those literature, GDP per capita, population, and the governance quality. Okay. 
lose my train of thought of okay. um, <clears throat> So yeah, um, the one point that I was trying to stress here is that from the global perspective and also in terms of how we talk climate finance readiness in the region, we do not differentiate between mitigation and adaptation. So, you know, specific variables that relates to adaptation finance, such as vulnerability or climate scene, when it comes to mitigation finance, they were dropped from the model. And this basically is the result. Uh, we run it uh, through SPSS using an ENTA method. Um, SPSS produced three tables and introduced two models. The first model, if you look at it um, in the first table, the, the emphasis here is the R squared. This basically, uh, so what SPSS does is it runs um, the model in, in, in matching, matching uh, the CF only to the confounding variables or the, con um, the control variables. And you can see it has 86% variation, which is quite high, again related to literature, that these are the major determinants of uh, climate finance flows. And it's quite significant in the 0.001 percentile. And when we add readiness, which is model two, it increased, so there's a positive uh, relationship, but the change is very small. It's only 0 0.049. Okay? However, it is still significant at the 0 0.05 percentile. So that shows that uh, readiness has a positive um, uh, impact on climate finance, but rather the impact is small. When it comes to model two, we looks at how the, the model can predict the fit of the model in terms of predicting climate finance flow. The F, the F value is the indicator here, very high F value, and it's significant at the 0.001 percentile. In the third one, the coefficient table looks at the strength in terms of how each variable predicts uh, climate finance flow. Population, as you can see, so the standard coefficient, look at the beta value, 0.059 is a positive, which basically says, High population means higher climate finance flow. And it's positive if you look at the last column at the 0 0.05 um, percentile GDP per capita. So that supports what literature is saying, GDP per capita. It also, the relationship is also supported in the sense that peop, uh, countries with high GDP per capita um, will have low climate finance flow. And it's significant, again, at the 0 0.05. Um, likewise, for government uh, governance quality as well as readiness. So uh, if you look at it, readiness, the um, variable emphasis, positive relationship, and it's also significant. So the discussion, oh, so readiness is predictable, but has a small effect on climate finance access. Uh, and readiness does not exist in a, in a vacuum. So the point that I'm trying, uh, trying to stress here is that if you look at the emphasis of readiness in the region, it seems like readiness seems to be treated like the magic bullet to our climate finance problem, which is not. Because if you look at it, there are other factors that affects climate finance flows into the region. Um, well, the point that I was just alluding to earlier, the current climate finance focus does not, readiness focus does not distinguish between adaptation and mitigation. But if you take it a level higher, climate finance globally focuses on mitigation. Okay? And this is supported if you look at uh, the decision 1 CP1 part 53 of the Paris Agreement. It basically states that within the context of the 100 billion that will be mobilized in 2020, it is within the context of mitigation. So from the pieces perspective, we can see a mismatch in terms of where the priority of climate finance is, which basically will mean the priority of readiness and our need. Our need is on adaptation, not on mitigation. 
And also, if you look at the Paris Agreement, again, the decision, the Paris Agreement talks about the need to expand the sources of climate finance, and private sector is, again, explicitly mentioned in the decision. So the point that I'm stressing here is that there is a move by donor countries telling developing countries, you need to use your private sector finance. We cannot be just giving you, um, continue to give you finance. Again, so the move towards private sector, you come and look at the reality of the Pacific, very small, underdeveloped private sector, and in some countries, basically no private sector. But this is the focus of readiness at the moment. So, bilateral and remittance. I don't know if um, uh, alternative is the, the right word for it, but the argument that we're saying that probably we need to reorient reorient our approach to readiness and look at bilateral and remittance, the fact that these two countries have, uh, rather, these two sources uh, have been good um, in terms of supplying external finance to the region. And um, yeah, just, just to conclude, the readiness gap in the Asia-Pacific is growing. Readiness is only a piece of the puzzle. There seems to be a mismatch in terms of our context. If you link it to the current readiness approach, at the regional as well at the global level, and probably this I need to rethink because the issue that I'm trying to stress here is that the continuing inaccessibility of Pacific Island countries to access funds from multilateral funds as well as the private sector can be is severe to some, and can, is if you look at the context of Kiribati, Tuvalu, it's as extensive. Yeah? If that is not addressed, we are probably just be flagging a dead, dead horse in terms of we are pouring money into readiness but it does not meet our context. Um, and to close, I know the, <clears throat> the method that we use might be, has limitation in terms of the data that were available, in terms of the technique that we, um, that we um, undertook, but we felt that this work is, is groundbreaking in nature in that it, it offers a, a first insight as to the current readiness approach in the region in which future studies can build upon. Thank you. All right, thank you, Charlie. Okay, it's, uh, that's our three presentations. I know um, some of you may have some questions. If there are any, we'll take them now. Um, well, any takers? No, well, I've got a couple to, to kick us off. First one for uh, Salah. So what's more effective, um, informal, in your view, informal consensus building or the formal uh, mechanisms? Well, in terms uh, maybe we'll take the questions and we'll go through some answers and we'll keep it short and then probably wrap up. Michael, I've got a question for you. You're suggesting household, um, household um, net worth is probably more powerful than income net worth of individuals? Yep. How about community net worth? Because you did argue that there's money coming from somewhere. How important is that? Maybe for Charlie, readiness is a big concept. One of the concepts is about getting your environment right. And there's a lot of significant flow of budget support in the region of late. Budget support relies on actually getting national systems right. Mm -hmm. And they appear to be getting right. So why then is readiness is why then readiness is not responding to climate finance in that view? We'll start with Salah. Maybe. Yeah, thank you very much. In terms of um, the question posed, whether formal or informal, nothing happens in the formal. Um, 
the leader statements is a hot air, and that's what leaders say. It's in hot air. We're just reading something. So in the context of actual negotiations, and I must, I forgot to, I forgot to sort of say, I went to these negotiations. Um, that's where I also met Charlie as a negotiator for either Samoa or Tuvalu, um, but not as a negotiator. My, 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 sort of my understanding with the. These countries was that I do not uh, undertake because of the objectivity in the in the in the, uh, in the research. But nothing happens in the informal. So even within the closed room chambers of negotiations, when there is a disagree, when there is sort of a, a disagreement between two parties, they are told to leave the room into the corridor and try and work some 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 way in through the language. Huh? Um, and so, uh, and a lot of these uh, informals are not done in the corridors, in hotel rooms, in cafes. That's where the real negotiations are. And I also like to stress that although one of the things is who is a, who is a Pacific negotiator? They're not just an official from government. They're an NGO. They are consultants from uh, uh, Germany. They are consultants from New York. Mm -hmm. uh, they are based in universities in Canberra. They are based in universities in Colombia. Uh, they are, you know, it, so it's not just your official delegate. Uh, there's also the you know the PIF officials. That's that is the that these are the people who are carrying uh, these officials, and it's not saying that uh, it doesn't work. These informal relationships have formed over the years, and the trust has formed through the years. And so, um, I guess the whole story is when we're trying to see who influences uh, decision making in terms of re uh, climate change policy in the Pacific or climate change, um, who articulate climate change um, uh, positions within climate change, you, you need to seek out these uh, informal actors. And as I said, in sort of pulling it all together, well, from all these nine uh, different meetings, I always found at least three or four people from the bond people, and they are the ones who really push the positions when it comes to those private room meetings into finalizing key um, uh, PIF documents, PIDF uh, documents, within the SIS doc declarations, within the, the text of the Paris Agreement. These are the people who were in, the, in these final rooms. Um, and so that's the policy uh, sort of um, uh, aspect to the project is the fact that you really need to identify this informal network of negotiators by providing the resources and also maintaining the consistency because a lot of our key negotiators are being bought uh, or, you know, because they are uh, working in uh, different organizations or being pulled into regional organizations. But the problem, if they are, it's also supporting them to come back while in the, a different capacity, which has been a tradition uh, uh, so far. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Michael? Yes. Um yeah, uh, thanks for that for that for that uh, very important uh, question. I guess um, we 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 sort of uh, uh, thought that the household um, network is the primary is the prerequisite to community network. Yeah, so so in that concept, uh, we we build on household network first, then we cater for the community network as well. That's why in our research, we also uh, explore or analyze what the social uh, capital could bring as, 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 as an alternate uh, 
uh, adaptation model in terms of uh, adapting to <coughs> by communities by uh, to extreme events and climate uh, uh, events. So that's also part of uh, part, part, part of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I mean, you also mentioned something called um, natural capital uh, accounting. Mm. Incidentally, I'll be presenting on that tomorrow. We've done a bit of work in the region on that. Okay. Uh, the system of economic and environment accounting and trying to see whether some of these communities actually have okay. uh, access to and how do they use some of these for um, their survival, okay. uh, some of the resources. Um, Charlie, okay. you've got a few minutes to talk a little bit about your point. Yeah. Uh, I think the point that, um, that I was uh, trying to stress was that um, there is no universal model when it comes to readiness. Readiness needs to be tailored to the need of the Pacific. Probably that's why we uh, improve uh, some issues, some readiness issues uh, are improving, but yet we still cannot access those funds because the the focus, I mean, I've, I've, I've highlighted it, the focus is on mitigation. Globally, the focus now is on mitigation and our need is on adaptation. Yes, our institution might be improving, but it's not aligned to what the global climate finance flow uh, is prioritizing. So that why, that's why we, uh, we propose the idea probably we need to expand um, our focus from just looking at multilateral private finance to also consider issues uh, such, such as bilateral and, and remittances because it's, they, they, they have been proven to, to work in the region or therefore we should uh, probably reorient and um, refocus our readiness to also leverage those um, opportunities better. Because like I mentioned, uh, if we continue to follow what works in Asia and we think that we can mimic it here, um, our, our, the possibility of us accessing our fair share of finance will still be limited. So that's why we, the study was calling for an alternative um, focus when it comes to readiness rather than just, just focusing on uh, accessing the Green Climate Fund and private sector finance because look at our context, the situation of the Pacific cannot um, respond to that kind of um, call, so to speak. Thank you, gentlemen, for your opinions. Um, take any further rounds of questions, if any. Um, I see no takers. Um, I wish to take this opportunity to thank you all for making time to be here. And, um, you know, I mean, um, and I also take this opportunity to thank once again the presentation, uh, presenters, Salah, Michael, and Charlie. Thank you very much. And take this opportunity to also thank the organizers for, for such uh, an event. I think it's been useful for me as well. Let me close this session. Thank you very thank much. You very much. Naka. Naka. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.